Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Outcasts with Dances Like a Butterfly, Stings Like a Bee, David Berry, and me, the geek of the class, but he does have a car, Tim Downey. Um, <laughs> this is... The, yeah? Good, they're getting more inventive. This is the show that lifts the lid on the bubbling pot that is Outlander and then drops in a few tantalizing choice morsels, and goodness me, they don't come more tantalizing or choice and today's an author of over 11 books. She began writing back in 1991 on a practice novel that was to end up being one of the most successful book series of all time. Her work is now published in over 26 countries and in 23 languages. She is, of course, best known for playing Iona McTavish in Outlander Season <laughs> 1, lest we forget. But, uh, but, of course, to us, she is known as Diana Gabaldon. It is Gabaldon, isn't it? I have got that right. That's close. It's actually Gabaldon. Gabaldon. My apologies. Diana Gabaldon. You've just embarrassed us, Tim. Oh, oh, my goodness. And I was doing so well. <laughs> I was doing so well. Well, Tim, Tim's is Tim Downey. It's a, it's a tricky one to get your, your um, mouth around, Tim Downey. Um, it is. It is. It is true. And uh, if we want to go into the lexicon of names, uh, Downey in certain parts of Scotland, because it's a Scottish name actually is used it is yeah yeah there is a, a Dooney castle where we were filming at one point near Creef there is a Dooney castle which and I am more excited about this than anything else is where they filmed Monty Python's Holy Grail exactly <laughs> I've been there <laughs> where they're coming up to let us see and he goes uh, no we've got everything thank you very much we don't need anything and they're kind of riding up and the, and the French then throw the cows <laughs> at them that is Dooney castle fabulous well um diana thank you so much for joining us it is a, a real treat that you have um you have come on our show it really is and uh as is the way with our with our guests uh we have asked if you would have a look at a scene that you would like to have a, a revisit if you will and the scene that we had a look at which which you you mentioned to me earlier is your favorite scene of the episode uh 511 which is in fact an episode that you have indeed written. Now, before we start, I just want to ask very, very quickly, when did you pick an episode to write or did someone come up to you and say, we want you to write this particular episode? Uh, well, uh, Matt Roberts picked it for me, but what I said was, I think I'm going to be finished writing the book that I'm writing, you know, toward the end of your filming. And so can I have one of the later scenes? So they gave me 5.11, as says naturally, they wanted to do the finale themselves. But as, as, as the creator of this entire world when you say that you're going to write an episode do they say you can do whatever you want you just come to us <laughs> and we will make it work or are, or are you given as much parameters and 
borders as any other screenwriter, someone who was going to write an episode of a, of Outlander or of a series? Well, uh, some of both. Uh, the way it works in Outlander world is the writer's room, meaning at the moment the showrunner, Matt, and uh, the writer of the moment, and possibly all of the writers, to start with, get together, and they pick out what they call the tent poles of the season. You know, we have to do this, we must do that, and we have to get this one in somehow, and how are we going to get from A to B, and all that. So quite a lot of the, of the underpinnings are provided for you. At the end of a writer's session uh, on a given episode, whatever, there's someone in the back of the room tapping away. And they will send you uh, room notes, which is what everybody said about everything. And along with this comes what the showrunner said about everything, and which is distilled down exactly what the steps that he wants. You can, uh, you know, pick anything, any starting point that you like, and uh, you can interpolate a lot of other stuff that's not on the list, as long as you somehow get the things that are. Uh. And, you know, you're allowed occasionally to omit something. And if they think, no, no, that's vital, then you put it back in. <laughs> so uh, this scene which you have picked um, from episode 511, is scene uh, 22. And this is the, the scene between uh, Jamie and Brianna. So could you just give us a little bit of um, background as to where we've come from up to this point? Uh, yes. Now, this was um, an interesting bit that, in that I did create this scene completely uh, anew for this episode. It's not from the book. And it wasn't exactly one that was uh, recommended to me as one of the tick list that you have to include. So I'm kind of pleased with that. What I did need to do was uh, deal with the picture of William. That's all it said was, you know, Lord John shows up and uh, gives uh, gives Jamie the picture of William. And they said, we need to mention this this picture somewhere else. And they did think that Jamie should tell Brianna or somebody should tell Brianna at some point about William. Because, you know, she's going off into the future and so forth. This will be their last chance. And so I said, okay, we can do that. So that's what we did. So, Tim, do you want to assign some roles? Or- yes, let's. Let's do that. I'm very excited. You should be. You should be. It's a two-hander. It's Bree and Jamie. We have, I mean, we are equally versatile in giving you a Brianna and a Jamie. Is there any, any, I mean, Diana, would you, would you like to take a particular role or would you like to do the, the big print, the stage directions to set the scene and unleash us? Uh, Oh, I think I'll unleash you. That sounds like a lot more fun. (laughs) Fabulous. Sounds amazing. Sounds, oh, sounds I'm perfect. I'm really rooting for, for you to take one of the roles, Diana. I, everyone <laughs> wants to hear you act. All right, I can do that. I mean, to hear you do a Jamie Fraser would be so Why interesting. Not? Okay, I'll do that. <laughs> All right, so I'm Jamie and uh, Tim's Brianna. That sounds, do you know what? Let's do that. David, David, you take stage directions. I will give you my Brie and Diana will give you her Jamie. We are, we are re- whenever, whenever you're ready, uh, ready. David, you. I'm ready. You unleash this beast. <laughs> okay, here we go. <laughs> Scene 22. I'm, I'm screaming inside with excitement right now. Interior, Fraser's Ridge, big house, dining room, day. Jamie finds Brianna, who's having something to eat. He hands her the portrait of William. Oh, I'm going to attempt an American accent, and I can only apologise for how it's going to turn out, and also how much it will change throughout <laughs> this scene. So here we go. Who's this? It's your brother, Akushna. Brianna looks up at Jamie with equal parts astonishment and excitement. I told you I was a prisoner of war and that I served as a groom on an English estate called Elwater. Well, that's where he was born. Off Brianna's nod. His name is William, and I, your mother, kens all about him. And who was his mother, if you don't mind telling me, I mean? Oh, I mind, but I'm going to do it anyway. She was a daughter of the house. Her name was Geneva Dunsany. 
it was no matter of love between us, but it was her choice, and that's all I'll say about it. Brianna looks searchingly at the portrait, looks up to compare it to Jamie's face. He looks like you. And very much like you, Mountain. Where is he now? Can I see him? He's in London. Jamie shakes his head and braces himself for the rest of it. He doesn't ken that I'm his father, and he never will. He's the ninth Earl of Ellesmere. If the truth were ever found out, his life would be ruined. He comes to stand by her, looking from her face to Williams and back. The eighth Earl of Ellesmere, the man who supposedly sired him, died when William was born, and so did William's mother. Lord John married her sister, and they became William's parents. So, Lord John is really William's uncle? Aye. Lord John has been a father to William since the lad was six years old. I don't know what to say. My brother? I thought I'd have a thousand chances to tell you. But since I didn't, I'm telling you now. I want you to take the knowledge of William with you. To ken there's more of your blood in the world than me and your mother. Maybe you want to look for him. In books, I mean. He'll be an earl. He might be easy to find. I will. Brianna can't stop looking between the portrait and Jamie and finally closes her eyes. The portrait clasped her uh, clasped to her heart. After a silence... When will you go, Adiana? We'll leave in, in a week. Jamie's overcome and just nods. After a moment, he speaks softly, still not looking at her. After your mother left me, with you in the belly, and I thought I'd never see you, I can't you were there. I was a husband... And a father. And now I'm a grandsire. And even if I never see any of you again, you've made my life whole. Both of them have teared up, but are still hanging on to themselves. Brianna nods and lays her head on her father's shoulder. End scene. End wow. scene. Oh, well, thank you. Glorious. That's my pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah, you thank you. No, I thought that was fanta- absolutely fantastic. I particularly like because when I was reading when I was reading this scene earlier, I was thinking, "How on earth am I going? Is, how on earth do you pronounce these Gaelic words? How much of a of a, of a grasp of Gaelic did you have before?" Uh... Um, <laughs> well, before it all started, absolutely none. But you know, I, I wrote Outlander. I began writing it in 1988, so that's been what uh, 32 years now. Wow! So wow. Uh, when I wrote that, I realized uh, upon a little bit of research that back in the 18th century, people spoke Gaelic for the most part in the highlands of Scotland. And I said, well, I've got to get that in, you know, to be as accurate as possible. Where am I going to find a Gaelic speaker in Phoenix, Arizona? Because this was pre-internet, you know, you could have sworn my things up. <laughs> and so I hunted about, couldn't even find a Gaelic dictionary. <laughs> I finally found one, small Gaelic English dictionary at Steinhoff's Foreign Books in Boston. And when I called them up and said, I'm looking for a Gaelic dictionary, they immediately said, Irish Gaelic or Scottish Gaelic? And I said, I found the right place. So that's what I used for the Gaelic of the first book, along with the uh, with the two not-yet-written sequels. And so I said to my husband, well, I think I really must go to Scotland and see the place. And so we did. You know, We uh, went and drove all over Scotland for a couple of weeks, uh, collecting books and everything else I could lay my hands on. And I found a much bigger and more accurate Gaelic-English dictionary, which I used for the Gaelic in the second book. Well, then, as I was working on the third, I got a lovely letter from a nice gentleman from the Isle of Harris named uh, Ian McKinnon-Taylor. And he said, you know, I've been reading your books. They're just wonderful. It is so marvelous to see, you know, my, my heritage, my country, etc., cetera, uh, shown so authentically and movingly and so forth. And he said, uh, there's just this one thing which I hesitate to mention. I think you must be getting your Gaelic from a dictionary. 
<laughs> that's a bird. You know, it's not that you're wow. saying the wrong words, but you're but you're not using them, you know, grammatically or idiomatically the way a, a, real, a real Highlander would. And he said, you know, I, I feel very modest about this, but but I offer you my services as a translator. And I said, where have you been all my life, Ian? And so Ian uh, did the Gaelic for me for the next uh, few books, I believe. Tim often helps me out how to be English, don't you, Tim? Uh, yes, I do. Yes, yes, yeah. I do. There's always the subtle. There's always the subtleties. Like for for instance, which is all, which is always the tricky, which is always the tricky thing, is that getting the subtleties of a certain cadence yeah. of a way of yeah. a way that natives speak to each other. So for instance, David overheard me on the phone the other day, um, just randomly. We were doing this, and I just happened to pick up the phone, and it was to another very English man. Mm-hmm. Very and English man. We put the we put the phone down, and David said, "I have literally no idea what you have just been talking about." It was like. A study in anthropology is what it was. Look at these two <laughs> extraordinary alien English creatures. And, and I've picked up a couple of things from Tim. All English people must have amazing mustaches. They have to. Um, this is my impression. And so for season six, I'm going to grow a mustache for Lord John. Um, they all have umbrellas. <laughs> yes. And uh, what was that other third thing, Tim? I, I always forget. The third. You, you, you must not ever say the thing that you actually have set out to say in the first place. You must kind <laughs> of politely go around it, dance about it. The other person, the, the thing is, though, this is this is the this is the, the the subtlety. Is the other person will know, they'll know, but you're just not having to say it, and it's keeping that distance, which is where David came in. When I literally, I don't know what's happened. <laughs> But things got done, and the right thing got done by saying, "Well, if you just, yeah, if 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 we could, absolutely, no, 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 I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dare, wouldn't dare, if we could, that would be fantastic. If you just, okay, and there it is, and we all popped up, and everyone was fine. But it's those subtleties, and I think, as obviously your 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 writing has matured as you have got into the story and really kind of developed these characters i think it's those little subtle nuances of character and of the native way of dealing with things really comes out i think we you really see it in the later books you really begin to see uh, it becomes less sort of grand epic and more intimate more family more intimate which is fascinating which you can only get by either living something or writing something for us as in depth as you have uh, as you have done, did you set out that for it to be a trilogy and to only be a trilogy, or did you think this could go on if it was desired? It could. Well, you know, I've never looked too far ahead. I knew there was more when I hit the end of the first book because I could see. You know, we were obviously going to continue into the Jacobite Rebellion because I yeah, set that all up. Originally, I'd intended to go all the way through that to Culloden by the end of the first book, and it was there that was going to happen. Uh, but, you know, I just began writing, and as I worked along, I could see that there was more to this. And I began thinking, uh, you know, one problem with my books uh, in terms of sales is that you cannot describe them to anyone. As my first yeah. uh, editor said, she said, these have to be word-of-mouth books because they're so weird you can't describe them to anyone. And that's just right. Consequently, publishers have no, had no idea how to label them, what to tell their sales reps. And so for a while, they tried selling it as a romance. But it worked. You know, it established a base of readers. And, you know, gradually we've outgrown that label, so to speak. But as uh, as we went along, um, I should say, I don't have any objection. Whatever the romance novels, I read them and I enjoy them. I just don't write them. But it got me thinking. And I was thinking, well, you know, Outlander actually has the underlying skeleton of a romance novel, amongst other things. That is, it is a courtship story. It's got a lot of things that a normal romance would never have. But, uh, you know, uh, it could 
actually be called a very large romance if you had to. The thing about romance novels is that they don't have sequels. They are all courtship stories. And once the courtship is over, the couple are married, they possibly they have a baby either before or after they get married. But that's it, you know, then those people. Or it turns into a melodrama. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And that's not what I was doing. And so I said, well, thinking about this, I said, I don't want to do the same thing over again. This is why the books are weird, is because I never like to do the same thing I have already done. And uh, oh, I can relate so, to that. That's why I'm in TV. <laughs> yeah, so thinking about it, I said, well, you know, uh, I'm not going to do a courtship story. I said, but, you know, I have never seen anyone try to tell the story of how you stay married for 50 years. You know, everybody can write a story about how you fall in love. That's easy. Everyone understands it. But how do you live with another person and stay in love with them for 50 years? I said, that seems like a worthy, you know, literary goal. So that's what I'm doing. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't want to circle back, Tim, if you don't mind. Uh, no, for no, a second. Talk, go for it. Because we, we kind of skipped over this. Why did you choose that scene? What is it about that scene that you thought, this is why I wanted to read it? And second of all, how did it feel to play Jamie Fraser? Ah, it was interesting. <laughs> well, it's better if you don't think too much about things like that ahead of time. <laughs> no, please let us, but, let uh, us know. <laughs> exactly. No, I... Um, well, mostly. Uh, I like that scene, uh, both because of the, uh, the intimacy and the strong emotionality of it. Uh, you know, whether you're writing, and I'm sure you both know this, whenever you're playing a scene that has a lot of emotion, the simpler you keep it, the better it is. You have to stay out of the way and let the emotion of the scene speak for itself, which is what I was doing there. And uh, when I saw Sam and Sophie play that, it is absolutely the most beautiful scene that I've uh, I've seen in a long time between the two of them. They just Hit it so perfectly. So essentially, I was visualizing that while I was talking, you know, not coming anywhere close to what they had actually done, but I had it in mind, which kind of made it easier not to think about me doing it. Well, yeah, anything would be a pale imitation, wouldn't it, to, to those yes, two? But I think I think you did it. Although we do bring, we bring a whole different color. Yeah. Well, we have we have our own thing here. We uh, we try our best. Oh yeah. And when you're writing now, like you were saying, you kind of you can see Jamie and Bree. Does that now? influence your later works oh no do you when you write jamie fraser do you see, I see sam? <laughs> big sam Hewitt's no, luckily face? not <laughs> yeah no i don't <laughs> i mean there's a certain similarity in general outline physically speaking but uh but not uh, not face wise uh, their faces are quite different in fact when my husband likes the show he says every time he sees sam in profile he wants to grab his nose and pull it out another inch or so <laughs> 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 it's the most bizarre thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I think most people, when they see Sam Sam Ewan in profile, they're thinking a whole lot of few different other things on how to pull his nose. The real, real Jamie has my husband's nose, which is you know quite long and very straight. It's a you know, very, um, very elegant nose, but it is noticeably longer than Sam's. <laughs> well, what was the, when was the first time... You heard that? Was it in the read-through that you first heard it sort of spoken aloud, or do you? Or I mean, do you speak your lines out loud, or do you get other people to to read something before you no, before you no, commit I can, it? I can hear things in my head. You know, when I'm writing, I can hear people talk. So, you know, I uh, I just write down what I'm hearing. Sometimes it takes a long time of fiddling to hear the next yeah. thing that comes along. No, I would have loved to be at the read-through, but unfortunately, I wasn't in Scotland at the time. So ah, so so but all all notes were sort of fed. Yeah, I didn't hear, hear that scene at all until uh, until I got the dailies from it. Really? Mm-hmm. Ah, so how much ch- was there? A lot of changes you had to make. Uh, that scene, no, that one's exactly as I wrote it, word for word. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's nice when that happens. R- oh, <laughs> right. Yeah, that's lovely when that, when that happens. <laughs> yeah. Done. 
Boom, sign yeah. off. Boom, done. Thank you very much. What's yes. next? Well, you know, after the first revision, uh, uh, the, I don't lay hands on the on the on the script again. It goes through various iterations, you know, on set. Whoever is working with it, but uh, usually they'll send me the revisions and so forth. And if they've done something, you know, great, I can write back and say, look, you know, I, I don't like what you've done here. This is why. And or often it kind of takes the form of, do you remember how people responded to episode four hundred two or whichever one it was? And I say they're going to take this the same way. So you might want to bear that in mind before you go ahead and do this. <laughs> Right. I mean, there's so many stakeholders now in in um, Outlander. We've got like directors, we've got producers, we've got the actors and the fans. Even do you feel like Outlander is yours anymore? Uh, well, the show isn't, but the books certainly are. You know, <laughs> I have total control over what goes into the story, and you know, the books will stand long after the show is gone. <laughs> I guess this um kind of leads into another question. I've been nervous to ask because i think i don't know how you feel tim but there's something a little bit dangerous or promethean about this interview <laughs> that they say that you're not really supposed to meet your creator here we are two actors two dummy actors we we do our best on the show but you know we're not the creator we, you do we a wonderful uh, job yeah i have a few well, well, thank you thank you we weren't fishing but you know it's, it's very well nice i'll take it not fishing but i'll absolutely take it that's on the cv now <laughs> one of the, the reasons i was really excited about having you on the show is this op- opportunity to sort of unpack this idea of ownership that we just touched on and particularly as it relates to the relationship between the the actor and the author and who really owns these characters because when i play lord john for instance there are times that i feel like a bit of a fraud because <laughs> I have this persistent voice in my head thinking, what does Diana think of my betrayal? And, and again, I'm not fishing for your compliments or anything. I'm actually kind of terrified to know the answer. No, don't tell me, please. <laughs> but I mean, as much as people know me as Lord John, I'm, I'm very acutely aware of that this was a creation of yours. And I wonder, like, with this intensely private relationship that you have with this character, how, how do you feel about that relationship between us as actors and your authorship of this character? Oh, I think um, almost everyone has done just a fantastic job of interpreting the characters. Uh, you know, I, uh, I've actually always been capable of carrying a book version and a movie version of a story that I've seen separately in my head. You know, to me, they're separate things. And while naturally there are, um, you know, underlying bits and pieces that must be present in the in the performance for it to be a believable actor, you know, I am not bothered by it being an adaptation. And uh, really the only... Uh, I've never really at all uh, been taken aback much by any of the characters, with the exception of the of Kyle Reese, who takes uh, John Quincy Myers. And it's not that there's anything wrong with his uh, with his portrayal. He's a wonderful actor, does a lovely job, and I'm quite not used to him. It's just that John Quincy Myers, to me, is a uh, seven foot tall, very uh, gaunt uh, gentleman with a uh, deep Appalachian accent, whereas uh, Kyle is this uh, burly. Uh, Bernie Welshman. <laughs> sort of like, no, that can't be right. But, uh, but you know, his, his his character as used is is used more as a sidekick to Jamie in times of need, whereas the, that's not the role that uh, that uh, that Myers plays in the books. He's an itinerant tinker, and so he comes bringing news and you know providing you know bits of uh, of goods that people need. So he's useful just to bring on stage if I have things happening, you know, in the in the far off. You know, things uh, militarily or historically that I just need, you know, to do a quick synopsis of. And then, of course, he's personally interesting. But he's, you know, just completely different from uh, from the Outlander version. 
but I don't mind um, the Outlander version at all. You know, he does a, a great job of it. And yeah. So you you have a different sort of attachment to your ideas, I guess, than than I might have. I get very personal and, and invested in my work. I find it fascinating that you can have a, a different sort of attachment to something that still has your mark on it or someone transmuting or, or interpolating your work. And you think I'm not. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. I'm a huge egomaniac. I, I have no idea, but <laughs> I can only imagine. If I had a series of international bestsellers and then someone was telling me that's not the way you do something, there would be part of me that would be going, <laughs> well, you know what, have you seen my resume? And there have been times that you have been a little bit critical of the show. I'm, I'm thinking of... Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, uh, I've been a consultant since the very beginning. And essentially, my agent got that put into the contract because he said, you know, the way Hollywood works, you will never get, you know, a percentage of the gross or anything like that because of the bookkeeping they do. He said, but if they make you a consultant and uh, they have to pay you a consulting fee, you know, that's kind of set in stone and you will get that money. And so I went to put that in. And I said, oh, great, you know, um, what might I have to do as a consultant? And he said, well, it depends entirely on the people running the show. He said, if they want you to be involved, then, you know, you do whatever they would like you to do, essentially. He said, chances are they will just want you to take your money and go away and not interfere with their show. And so I trod very carefully as we uh, embarked on this. And, you know, Meryl and I had become quite friendly during the casting process and so forth. And uh, and, uh, she and Ron would call me up and, you know, was having hysterics that they had finally found Claire. They'd found uh, Jamie, you know, four days into the casting after thinking it would be very difficult. And uh, Earl and I were both sort of clutching our chests and we were watching Sam's uh, audition and we're going, oh my God, it's actually him. <laughs> and uh, it was all very exciting. I read something. I read something that in that casting process that your first response to Sam was that he was grotesque. Well, <laughs> that um, true? let me tell you what. You Google Sam Hewitt and look at his very early uh, at the pictures that were available of him before he started making out. Oh, I've seen them all. Yeah. They're on my walls. No, he had uh, almost almost no films. Uh, the one thing he had done was Emulsion, which is a truly weird psychological thriller. And other and I hadn't seen the film. I still haven't. But uh, I had seen the pictures of him from it. Before that, it was all stage work. And so you got these, these uh, you know, sort of off-the-cuff uh, stills that they put up in front of the theater. And, you know, usually small runs and things like that. Not professional photographs, by and large. And uh, have you ever seen these stills from uh, Young Alexander? The first and never seen movie. No, but I'd like to. You know what? I have. I actually have. You know, it's just one of those kind of things where you kind of just happen across them and go, oh my, oh my God. Yes, well, that's what I was thinking when I made that particular <laughs> remark. Because it's when they gave me his name, you know, I was traveling with my husband in the car. And so I was badly Googling Sam Hewn on my phone. There's you know, basically nothing except you know, this handful of half a dozen pictures. The, the only one that looked halfway normal was the one from uh, First Light is, is World War II, uh, 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 flying thing, and, and all of the others. I mean, well, you know what it's like. He's a total chameleon. He changes with each uh, with each um, character. Yeah, no, he's got great range. Yeah, but he was yeah, playing really range. weird parts. <laughs> and I was thinking, well, he doesn't look like Jamie Fraser, except a little bit around the edges with the flying one. On the other hand, he looks really different, so maybe he'll be fine. And, of course, he was, but, uh, but uh, you know. But that was my first reaction. I was like, are you sure? <laughs> but Definitely then uh, they the sent nose. me immediately the audition tapes. And uh, so I said, well, I can't look at them until I get to Santa Fe tonight. But when I did get there, you know, I was sort of peeking through my fingers and uh, came up and uh, I was thinking, well, he doesn't look at all like his pictures. He looks fine. And then five seconds later, he was gone. And it was just Jamie Fraser right there. I was astonished. 
But uh, yeah, you mentioned ownership of a character and all that. And people who ask me, you know, well, how do you feel, you know, having, say, Sam, you know, um, play Jamie and so forth. And I said, well, you know, kind of share custody of Jamie Fraser. You know, he, uh, he's been playing him for so long. You know, he's got his own, uh, own sense of the man, which is pretty close to mine. But yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I wanted to unpack this relationship a bit, if you don't mind, because I think you famously have a, a pretty close relationship with Sam. And I, I think it's, I don't know if I speak for myself here, Tim, but I think it's the envy of just about everyone on set. Pretty much. Pretty much. We get Jamie and Claire. I, <laughs> right. I think the real power couple behind the scenes is uh, Sam Hewen and, and, and Diana. <laughs> I was yeah. wondering how you came to have this relationship and how it, if it's come to influence your work in any way. And uh, can we have dinner on Thursday next week and maybe you no, and I'm I can have open. that relationship <laughs> I'm instead. right here, David. I'm literally right here. Unbelievable. Sorry, I'm sorry, Tim. But uh, <laughs> we're talking, I'm talking to Diana right now. <laughs> yeah, no, it, uh, it sort of got off on the right foot. You know, I knew absolutely nothing about uh, making a movie and, and I was completely surprised that he had done such a wonderful job with the audition because, you know, he was using books, uh, lines straight out of the novel. Uh, no, uh, no adaptation for script or anything like that. So these were my lines. But I was saying, that's, that's Jamie. You know, that's just how I would say that. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's amazing. So I was uh, so thrilled by this that I uh, went looking for Sam online. So I wonder if he's on Twitter. And he was. Uh, I think he had uh, 12 followers at that point. Twelve There was a time when Sam had 12 yes, I remember followers. Well. Uh, anyway, wow. he was uh, talking to one or two of them when I found him, you know, the, I could see the tweets coming up. And uh, he was just on the verge of leaving for Norway to uh, do, uh, uh, that was Heart of Lightness, I think. I've never seen that movie. That was another weird one. Oh, he looked more normal. Now. But uh, anyway, <laughs> he was uh, <laughs> saying to someone that he that he was leaving for Norway, you know, in a, in a, the next day, I think. Meanwhile, he was making champagne. He was making elderberry champagne in a bucket, which he had just got from the hardware store. It's definitely not the same <laughs> hue and before Outlander. Making champagne grotesque. I mean, obviously, he's updated his his uh, Tinder profile now. He's got a better picture up there somewhere, probably. And he's he's definitely not making elderberry champagne. He's making whiskey, whiskey with now, a massive he? distillery. I mean, it's different to making bathtub gin, like some sort of Victorian waste. <laughs> well, sorry to interrupt. Where, where did it go from there, Diana? Like, what, what happened after that? Yeah, well, as I said, I'm uh, chatting, and he mentioned, you know, going to Norway for a film, and so I had quickly followed him so that I could. Uh, step in and so i just put something in there and said nice job man which might have been taken to apply to the, the film in norway anyway he recognized me uh, me from my uh or he probably said who the hell is that and went and looked and was going oh my god it's her <laughs> and then he, so he immediately followed me back and we started you know the, the direct messages and basically we were both just waving our hands and going oh this is great this is wonderful <laughs> and, uh, you know mutual admiration society at that point so you know, it's really never changed with all this talk of Sam Hewen, I, w- I wanted to switch gears for a second and talk about sex. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite topics. <laughs> well, I think it's one of all of our favorite topics. And I wanted to say that the way that you depict sex in your novels is sort of, a, for my money, a very visceral and very explicit sense to it. And I have to confess that reading your books to blushing a little bit, imagining what kind of sex life you're having. I'm a, I almost feel like I'm in the bedroom with you. And let me say I was a little, more than a little bit embarrassed for myself, that is, when I met your husband. Um, uh, but then, of course, you, you're very, you're very, very good at describing homosexual sex in the Lord John novels as well. And, and however, you might be able to channel the thoughts and desires of a gay men, I'm pretty sure 
although I don't want to be presumptive that you're not in fact a gay man. So not um, in this life, no. <laughs> well, maybe in another. So I'm fascinated by your approach to depictions of sexuality in your work, and I was I was wondering if you could uh, excuse the pun, lift the sheets on on that little <laughs> on that little, and uh, give well, us an fine, insight yes. into the importance of sexuality for your characters in Outlander and and how you go about writing a sex scene. Yeah, well, as I said, I, I realized that I was writing the story of a marriage rather than, you know, a, a romance novel and so forth. And um, as I may have said once or twice before, there may be long and happy marriages that don't involve sex, but I'm not aware of any. You know, personally, I've been married for 48 years. You know, I know what I'm talking about. And uh, also, I was um, I was a scientist in my previous incarnation. I've got a PhD in quantitative behavioral ecology, which is just animal behavior with a lot of statistics. But, you know, I'm used to watching, you know, animals, people, et cetera, and figuring out why they do what they do. And as it's all fairly, <laughs> fairly straightforward when you come to sex. The thing is, you know, sex, as you undoubtedly know, is a, a language unto itself. There are, you can express any emotion in a sex scene between two people. And the fact that it is a sex scene gives it a heightened immediacy. And that's because people are hardwired to be interested in sex. It's deeply important to us as a species. And so you even mention the word sex and people start paying attention, you know, maybe not that abruptly, but, but they start paying attention. If there is a sexual mm-hmm. context to a scene, immediately people's attention and focus on it. And so anything that's said in that context achieves a, a, a higher level of emotionality and greater impact. Consequently, you need to use less of it rather than more. Uh, you don't have long speeches during sex scenes, but what is said has to uh, be to the point, shall we say, or apropos at least. And um, Use all the puns, Diana. We're all for it here. We, we love them. Exactly. I love them, yes. Well, it is impossible to talk about sex without every other word being a double entendre. <laughs> and, uh, you know, having, in fact, written a small e-book, uh, it's called I Give You My Body, How I Write Sex Scenes. And that's what it's all about, is how do you write a, a good sex scene, for that matter, how do you write a bad sex scene, so you will know if you've done it and change it, and uh, things like that. But mm-hmm. uh, that goes into Essentially, it gives you a different context uh, and uh you, you would use the same vocabulary of relationships and so forth, but you can do anything in the context of a sex scene that you could do otherwise, you know, from hate, anger, violence, et cetera, down to, you know, the most uh, tender intimacy and, you know, healing, which uh, Jamie and Claire use fairly frequently, like to how frequently he gets beaten up. But, uh, you know, uh, it just uh, to be aware of the other person is essentially the, the basis of, good, of a good sex scene, either on the page or in person. You know, you just want to be focused fully on them, you know, not on yourself. Um, I mean, that'll come along if, if it's working well. And you just don't need to worry about it. Well, absolutely. I think what fascinates me about the way that you write sex scenes and, and indeed the way that sex scenes are portrayed on Outlander is that they have a very sort of different or almost unique way of d- d- displaying intimacy. It always has a very, I want to say, again, without being presumptive, almost it takes things from the female gaze, which I think we're so often used to seeing in film and TV, you know, the sex scene um, in back in the 50s was just a train going through a tunnel. Uh, other eras, we've had everything from the male point of view. It's like just to find gratification in an instant and it's over and we see uh, a bit of things that titillate. Oh, well, they've been very good with, uh, with interpreting uh, sex scenes and so forth. I was quite surprised to begin with that they were willing to do uh, the sex in uh, – such a, an explicit, though tasteful way. Um, it did not actually surprise me that it was done from uh, the female point of view. In fact, I'd never heard the, the words female gaze before until uh, various reviewers started hopping up and down and going, oh my God, no one's ever done this before. And I'm thinking, 
narrator. But anyway, you know, um, Claire is the narrator of the first book. After that, uh, the narration spreads out a bit, but she continues to be the only first-person narrator. You do get the other characters' points of view. You can be inside their heads in different parts. Uh, and I really enjoy uh, writing from a male point of view, for that matter. My husband reads what I write, by the way, <laughs> and occasionally he will write something and say, no, I mean, no, really not. <laughs> He'll say, all right, tell me how. <laughs> and in fact, uh, my husband is still the only person who sees what I'm writing while I'm writing it. Um, because you know, I can trust his input. He's known me a long time and vice versa. And so when I finish a scene, I, I work at night, as noted, and I'll just print it off and take it down, leave it on his sink. And he gets up very early at 5.30 or so. I call him bed at 4.30. He gets up at 5.30. He goes off to drink his coffee and read the scene. So I'll bring it back at noon with, you know, uh, marginal remarks and things like that, like nipples again and <laughs> things like that. So, but, you know, he's very blunt and uh, yeah, very funny himself. But he can put his finger on anything that's wrong. Sometimes I'll put a, my own note in and say there's something wrong with it right here, but I don't know what it is. And he'll come back and he'll say, well, it's this, you know, this particular character. Um, either he's in the wrong scene or he should shut up here because he certainly shouldn't be doing what he's doing. He isn't, you know, no, no proper man would do that sort of thing. And so that, once I've seen it, then it's extremely easy to fix, of course. But uh, my only uh, editorial input, I guess you'd say, while I'm working is from a man. So as I say, it never entered my mind that having a female gaze was anything different. You know, it's, it's just my gaze. Tim, have you ever had to do a sex scene on camera or film? Professionally, we're talking about here. Do you know what? No, no, I haven't. No, I haven't. They've always been, uh, they've never been full on sex scenes. They've always been slightly fumbly embarrassments, <laughs> is basically it. that kind of very, very English kind of, oh, 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 okay, just sorry, sorry, sorry. No, that's my arm, get my arm out. Yeah, a lot of that. Very, very, a very English way of approaching what is, of course, a very emotive, difficult subject especially for for a whole society like my own that is very gets very embarrassed very easily so we uh, we approach you know the english would would approach it or certain echelons would approach things like that the, the only way we know how which is through comedy which is through the awkwardness of it because we are not that expressive and so to therefore to do a full uh sort of expressive sex scene would i think for me would be slightly tricky i'll throw myself into it don't get me wrong uh but i've also heard that actually from an actor's point of view they are one of the least erotic least sexual things you will ever do they are so prescriptive they are so kind of all right now we're doing that now put a hand there don't put your hand there all right let's get the boom i mean i remember doing one one of these little kind of slightly fumbly sort of funny sex scenes and it was in a tight it was supposed to be in a dorm we were students just kind of that embarrassed sort of first time of 18-year-olds, that kind of thing. And as we were filming it, the guy who was the boom operator had to stand literally where our heads were, holding the boom in, with his belly hanging out from under his shirt, going, is that it? Can you see that? Have you just got, sorry, sorry. I kept knocking it. And it just made the whole thing so... We're talking about the mic here, right? So incredible. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. But it just made the whole thing so desperately <laughs> awkward. And so kind of, please let this end. Please let this end. This is, yeah. So the writing of them and the uh, the, uh, the the magic of them that can, that can appear on a page that your mind can then take flight wherever it wants to be is very different to, all right, scene 18, everyone. Um, just the people that need to be here. Don't, Steve, not you. You don't need to be here. Oh, it takes the edge Absolutely. Off. And I remember one of my first... I'd, I'd done a couple of sex scenes, but I had my first Outlander sex scene, I remember. And I, I remember getting on the page and I was like, oh, here we go. Here we go. 
That's why I had to sign the nudity contract. This this has been coming up. I've been, this is why I've been going to the gym. I knew that this moment might come up and my time was now. And it was uh, in season four where Lord John was going to have a little bit of a tryst, romantic tryst with uh, Judge Alderdice. And I, I knew how these things played out. I, I remember the, the actor who played it. It was Andrew. I can't remember his last name, but like most good one night stands, you can't remember their last name. You might even not remember the first name. <laughs> But this guy, he 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 um we hardly knew each other. So we had to do the sex scene. We just met um that morning and, and he was like trying to negotiate, well, who's gonna do what? Um, you're gonna be the pitcher or the catcher. And we had to think about these things because they're very much um character choices. And I think that we had the discussion with Nancy who directed and he's like, Look, no, Lord John, you're the pitcher and Andrew, uh, you're the catcher. And then you had to have a kind of discussion about the tone of it. And then and then we got to the business of it and we had to do it several times. And then I remember Andrew getting really into it. <laughs> but it's two straight men just trying to simulate this gay sex scene. And, and um, I mean, that's, you do all kinds of things as an actor, but there's never something so quite strange as when you're in that moment trying to uh, you know, recreate something so intimate yeah. and so private and <laughs> personal. Really and what I like about Outlander, though, is, is that it has – no sense of shame about sexuality. Um, you had a bit of a criticism about a sex scene that happened in, in this season. I think it was episode six. We was I think it was in the stables. You said uh, you weren't quite happy with the, the writing and the direction. And I was wondering, like, what what your thoughts were on that, and uh, if you could just expand a little bit on the criticism and where you think the direction of how uh, Outlander has approached sexuality as it's. Jamie and Claire's that their relationship is morphed and we're probably now focusing on other characters. Like how do you think that sexuality is going to play into the show now that you sort of, we're out of the honeymoon and we're, we have to potentially think about other people having sex? Well, I'm fine with other people having sex. You know, that's not a real problem. Either. I don't know if everyone wants to see Tim having sex. <laughs> everyone wants to see me. <laughs> everyone wants to see this. Don't, yes, don't make assumptions. Uniform, yes. Unless, exactly. <laughs> I can do with that tomorrow night, Tim. <laughs> you can take the wig off. <laughs> give, it, give it a chance. Just give it a chance. Just let it play out. Don't answer exactly. straight away. No, I'd like to see Governor try it without his wig. <laughs> yeah, but uh, returning to the stable scene and so forth. The problem there was more with uh, the setting, but uh, it was more but it was the sort of scene that it is, which is uh, one of what they call the iconic scenes. These are scenes that have a big impact on readers of the books. And uh, consequently, they're you know very eager to see this particular thing, but they're very eager to see that particular thing. They don't want to see anyone's interpretation of it, or they don't want it to be changed in some way. Uh, you may recall back in, I don't know if you were uh, noticing in the show in uh, season three, when Claire comes back to Jamie and shows him the pictures of Brianna. Okay, well, in the book, this is, you know, an incredibly moving and affecting scene. You know, this is one of the main reasons why she's come back, in fact, is to show him his daughter and all that. And uh, in the book, he, you know, looks shocked and, you know, straight-faced because he can't think what to do for a moment. And then, you know, there's a line that says, he turned toward me and with the improbable grace of a tall tree falling, leaned on my shoulder and went completely and thoroughly to pieces. Okay, so this is a line with a lot of impact. People want to see that. <laughs> and instead, you know... Uh, well, back in uh, episode two of that season, uh, there was this very deeply emotional uh, shock scene and so forth after Fergus has his hand cut off and uh, Jamie is waiting to see if he's alive. His sister comes down and says, yes, he's alive. And, and Jamie just falls to pieces. He falls literally to his knees you know, and is just going to pieces in her arms. And I saw the, the tape 
for that. And I wrote Sam and I said, well, this is absolutely great, you know, wonderful stuff. I said, I'm a little concerned because that is what people are expecting to see you do in episode six, you know, and you don't want to be doing the exact same thing, of course. And he said, no, you're right. But he said, I, I thought about that and I ha- I'm going to go to pieces in a completely different way. And I said, I can't give it to you. So anyway, he did. And that wasn't what they were expecting to see. And so there was something they had fits, you know, and basically the, the complete impact of the scene was lost because they didn't get to see that line. And uh, so same, same with the stable scene. They were actually using lines directly from the books. I can't complain about the writing, really. It was more how they, uh, what they had going on around that particular bit, um, because, and I don't know how this got involved. They had sort of framed it with this uh, odd uh, sense of not quite jealousy between them, but they had to get from where they were into a scene of white hot passion in about five seconds, which is really, really difficult to do, and they didn't do it uh, for obvious reasons. In the book, it's written completely differently. Amy goes off to uh, to gamble with Claire's ring. She's furious, but uh, but you know, she understands what he's doing. Anyway, she gets falls asleep and so forth. And a little later, uh, someone is playing with her feet in the darkness. She's on a bed with a number of other ladies. And, and someone, obviously a man, is you know playing this little piggy with her toes. And she's like, who the hell is that? Anyway, when he leaves, she you know gets up and goes out. She drives all the other women. Anyway, she goes out and she sees Jamie you know, at the bottom of the stairs, you know, completely drunk and uh, you know, not capable by any means, but completely drunk. And she doesn't know whether he's just been in her room or someone else and he's just coming on. And uh, anyway, at that point, he... Uh, he grabs her and takes her out to the stables and and you know they uh, they have this ferocious uh, sex and you know she's in a shift and he's wearing a kilt it's not a problem that's hot yes exactly it is hot yeah so in this one you know we have this brightly lit completely sterile looking stable and she's out there petting the horse and he walks in cold and uh, you know this two or three lines of exchange about the rings and so forth and at which point he says something you know completely sexist and she slaps him uh, out of nowhere i mean there's no there's no emotional context for what's going on there it's, it doesn't exist except in the lines you know and that's why it's so difficult you can tell that the actors didn't want to be doing this i mean you can tell when an actor doesn't want to do what he's doing it's, it's all on the context in the foreplay mm-hmm. in many ways exactly yeah that scene depends entirely on what happened ahead mm-hmm. it's not it's not the the nudity. Mm-hmm. It's not the actual how explicit it no, is. Never. It's it's the context. That's exactly the right. But that's why that one didn't work. Is that there was no room for context. They hit it cold, with, and and there there was nothing there. Let alone the white hot passion implied by the words that were used during the actual sex, which were made more ludicrous by the fact that they're doing this in blazing light, and rather than the darkness of a <laughs> of a stable. And uh, they're both fully clothed in eighteenth century clothes. So uh, the words look look down while I take you, damn you have much less combating impact, you know, when it's obvious that he can't be getting anywhere near her private parts. <laughs> well, I think you said something also very, very interesting there as well. And I don't know about you, Tim, what you do with uh, scripts. And no offense to writers here, but this is a little secret what actors typically do. We get the scripts. I then go on through the pages like bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. My part, bullshit, bu- me, bullshit, bullshit. We also go through the bits with a big print and we go like, yeah, no, not doing that, not doing that, not doing that. My lines, yep, not doing that. We just go through like that because there's a sense of ownership we want to take of our own choices. Tim, how, how do you feel about that? How do I approach it? I approach it very similar. I'll look through it and kind of go, what am I doing? What am I saying like that? And I will not really reach stage directions. I'll kind of come to that later. I'll kind of go, okay, I'll look at the lines and get those in very lightly just so they've kind of got a shape. And then I'll kind of look to see where the actions and how what that will then sort of thread through into what the character is then 
uh, is then doing. But also, I like to leave a lot of gaps for, okay, well, once I get on set and I see it, because I haven't seen it yet, I'll know, uh, you know, with Outlander, I know what I'm wearing, because you're kind of, okay, I'm wearing this, and that's restrictive, or that's that gives you another element of character, because you could do certain things that you can't do now, like I'm wearing a T-shirt now, and I can obviously move all over the place, the freedom of it. But when you're in a certain costume, you can't. So that it's taking all these little levels and all these little stages as you go through. So then the set, the day, every other little thing, how other people react, all change everything to how you kind of go, okay, well, I've thought like this and I'll shift it a bit like this and I'll fit it into this and fit it into that. And that's kind of how you will kind of bring something together. And then even as you're playing it, but you'll probably agree with this as well, David, even as you're playing it, you're going, oh, that's better. Oh, actually, if I, oh, if I do that, that's better. And your 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 ideas will change. You go, no, that may that's because be- that means because if I say it like this, then that gives that character far more onus to walk away or do something else. But if I don't, it won't give him or her that emotive thing. I think know? there's two things happening here for me. I I sometimes and and no offense to to writers, the relationship I have to Big Print is some sometimes one of contempt. I'm like, you can't tell me how to play my character. Uh, and if I make a decision here, you don't tell me what to do. Like I go up and get get the the drink there and do that. I, I will decide that myself and whether I think the character is justified in doing that. And then, I, like you said, Tim, I have to come to whether or not that's justified in the script and my, my motivations. And then eventually I'll come to it. But there have been times where I'm like, no, nah, that's just not going to work. And I, I can't do that. And then there are other times where I'm like, you know what? I've got even a better idea for an action here that the writer hasn't thought of and and it's those times you feel like you're really great and then probably don't, won't make the edit but <laughs> um, that's uh that's how how i take it and i don't know how you feel diana but it is often in this sort of creative marriage that we're in between actor and and writer we have to negotiate our terms some way sometimes when things don't exist within the realms of just your imagination but ours as well of course yeah well that's one of the fascinating things about this is it's a uh, television show is such a collective enterprise you know when i'm writing a novel it's me and the book that's it you know <laughs> and this is very intimate and you know completely free relationship i can do anything and you know and that is a relationship between me and the book you know and um, hit places and think no that's not working and i'll just set that aside and eventually like, it does work comes along but uh looking at this and uh, watching the takes um, on a daily basis is one of the great perks of uh, being involved with the show absolutely love to watch people work things out the way that you said and do it just slightly different in each one. So the, and frequently I'm sitting at straight going, yes, that one, that one, use that one. <laughs> Often enough they do and sometimes they don't. And uh, actually I have suggested to them once in a while, I say, you know, there's this one really particularly good take and this is why. <laughs> and sometimes they'll go, I'm actually obliged to be a uh, So, you know, but it is a very negotiating uh, sort of process, as you say. And it occurred to me for the first time in season two, when I was on set for uh, the episode I'd written there, why people say the writer is the low man on the totem pole in a, in a, a show or movie that he's right. That's because the writer is the only person whose work doesn't involve time or money. It, it's in your head. It can be easily changed like that. And you're always going to get to a spot where, you know, it happened uh, there. I was writing that Anne Kenny was doing the other episode in the block. And at the end of this scouting uh one day on what they call tech recce where you go around all the locations and coming back and uh 
uh, David Brown, the executive producer, said, would you both come back to my office? I have something to talk about. I said, okay. And he said, uh, well, I've been on the phone all day with the agents for, uh, for Nell Hudson, who plays Lyric, and Annette Badlands, who plays... Uh, you know, Mrs. Fitz, and because Anne had written an episode in which there were five scenes in which Mrs. Fitz and Leary appeared together. And this was kind of an important scene because it was where they were going to try and redeem Leary for the stupid uh, decisions that they'd made in the earlier uh, earlier season, which uh, made it impossible for Jamie ever to have consciously married her, knowing what he knew about her. So they were going to try and redeem her here. Anyway, it worked for a lot of reasons, none of them being Anne's fault. But anyway, she was going to have Mrs. Fitz, you know, sort of do special pleading with Claire on Mary's part and all that. And uh, But they couldn't have the two actresses together. Um, they could have. She's, he said, uh, we have this castle for four days. We can't move those days. It has to be these four days. I can have Nell on day one and day two, but not Annette. I can have Annette on day three and day four, but not Nell. There's no way I can have them both present. So he looked at Anne and said, you've got five scenes involving these two women. Which one do you want? Maybe you'll have to rewrite them using only that one. And so she, I could see her turning white and so forth. But that's when I realized, wow. you know, if it's time or money, but if it's the writer, not. Nah. I think you might need a new agent. Um, because uh, Tim's getting paid a lot. Yeah. Uh, just turn up. Yeah. Uh, way too much, really. Considering uh, for what he does. And and you didn't even write it, Tim. You you just you just I just walk words. around like I have written it. That's 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 my arrogance. What about, yeah, I know what all this is about. Don't worry about that. Don't even, don't come near me. I know. I'm in. I'm in cat. Leave me. Do a lot of that. <laughs> you said you you feel low on the totem pole. I just want to just. Well, figuratively, I'm sure you don't actually believe that. I, I think you, you once said in an interview um, that as an eight-year-old, you had this uh, conversation with God where yeah. you, you told him, uh, I want to write the kind of books that, that lift people up and that, that God said to you um, in a very matter-of-fact way, I think. <laughs> That's okay. But um, but people view you as a kind of goddess or, or deity yourself, and um, I was wondering how you uh, respond to that, and how does that make you feel in times of darkness, like what we're all going through with this COVID nineteen thing right now, and how people look to you and your artistry as something to get them through that and see the light at the end of the tunnel. Do you do you feel a weight of that responsibility? How do you feel about those things? Well. Uh... They're using the books that I've written over the last 30 years. There's nothing I can actually do to affect those at the moment. They, they stand as they are. And I'm really, really happy that, uh, that people can find them an escape and a distraction and, you know, some, uh, some help uh, in times of all kinds of trouble. I get very moving uh, emails periodically from people who have encountered the books during a, t- a time of, you know, personal tragedy. And there was uh, one woman, this one I can tell you about, um, she said her brother-in-law had shot himself in his living room and it terrible mess. Anyway, her sister, of course, had been hospitalized and sedated and all that. And she said the, the police come and gone and so forth. And she'd run back and was looking at, at this, what was left and so forth. And she said, I can't let my sister come back to this. I would pick it up. And, um, and so she said, I said, well, if I was Claire, I wouldn't have any problem with this. I'm just going to be Claire for the next half hour. And so that's what she did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. wow. Yeah, but you know, I mean, this is yeah, not we things, could all afford to be clear, yeah, couldn't we? But yeah. things like this are, these are not things I could foresee, let alone address purposefully. All I can do is tell the story the most honestly that I can. Yeah. Well, those characters, they kind of have a life beyond you and uh, they give people strength. And um, yeah, we could all afford to be clear. We could all, uh, you know, want a Jamie Fraser in our life. We could all want someone to annoy us like uh, Governor Tryon, couldn't Absolutely. we, Tim? Someone to look or, up to, like, be your uh, best friend. Someone to look up to, like Governor yes. Tryon, because uh, he, he had a goal. And he went and he did it. And I think that 
that is quite important. What happens after that? Well, I shall leave in your hands, Diana. I'm just, I'm just saying. I'm just putting it out there. Um, plenty more um, and all that. But one, th- one thing I would, I would love to know is, obviously, when you started, uh, they gave you a three book deal. And then uh, it went mm-hmm. above and beyond that. And now you're, you've just finished writing the last, uh, no, the, the, the really latest close. one. <laughs> nearly there. You're, you're nearly there. You're nearly there. Do you see where it will go? In within, obviously, I'm not asking for any details, but do you see an, an overarching beginning and an end? Can you see that, or is it a story that sprawls out and that you follow? Well, sort of neither. It evolves around me. It's uh... It has an internal logic to its uh, to itself. I don't plan things out ahead of time, and I don't write in a straight line. I don't have an outline, and, uh, and I write where I can see things happening. And so, in the beginnings, I'll have these handfuls of scenes here and there, which aren't connected in any way, shape, or form. But as I gradually write, I can see the connections. I see uh, I'm writing something, and I think, oh, this goes. This explains why that piece happened. So this has to go ahead of that, and I can join them up. And so it's uh, so like playing Tetris in my head, but very slowly all these floating shapes, which are gradually fitting together and making a pattern. Then I can see the pattern. I can see what has to come next. Um, it's very organic. It's like, you know, growing crystals in your basement. Uh, you can't force the crystals to grow in a different alignment or be a different shape, but you know, they can form, you know, a, a large thing or a, a mat or things like that. The crystals will form according to their own uh, internal laws of uh, geophysics. That's the scientist yeah, speaking now, there. isn't it? <laughs> but yeah, no, but uh, there's always a logic to it. As I said, it was an animal behaviorist. There is a logic to why people do what they do. Uh, they have infinite variation in that, of course, but what they do has to be logical in terms of their own persona and their own context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but to answer your actual basic mm-hmm. question, mm-hmm. I never think about the readers when I'm writing. You know, I can't, it's just me and the book. I can't say, oh my God, you know, I've got to do this because they'll, they'll go mad. And so sometimes I'll write something and my husband will write in the margin. They're going to scream when I see this. I'm going, well, yes, but you know, I can't do anything about that. <laughs> Tim, you, you never think about the, the audience when you're acting either. You're thinking of the paycheck, aren't you? the paycheck. I'm just thinking of myself and uh, <laughs> what, what I'm having for dinner that, that evening. I'm thinking of the lunch. I'm thinking of lunch. Really, myself. Yeah, yeah. peek behind, <laughs> peek behind the actor's curtain for you there, Diana. You, you think it's all character going, yep. he looks... Well, I was an actor. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So you know the anguish of going, he looks very yeah. focused. You're going, what time is it? Ah, that's why. He's hungry. And he's just thinking, yes. I just yes, get through this. <laughs> then I'll be at that truck. There that's what's going to happen. <laughs> well, Diana, I, I cannot thank you enough. Thank you for your well, time, for your thank insight, you so much, yeah. for the books and the continuing work that you do. And for such a such a wonderful show. And thank you. I think I speak for David as well when I just say it's been an absolute joy to speak to you. Scary. Yeah, scary. I enjoyed it so much. But uh, uh, meeting your creator, but uh, uh, very, very enlightening. Oh, you guys are tremendously fun. And uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's lovely to talk to you both. Really enjoyed it. Hello, and welcome to Listener's Questions, where we'll go through our inbox again and uh, find the best question. Well, we have a very interesting one here. Okay. Um, quite a tricky one. Actually, I think this is more like a, one of those mass riddles. Um, but this is from Julie. Well, thank you for this, Julie. The question is, uh, Ian has 20 apples and has to walk up a 15-degree steep hill. He has a brother. His name is also called Ian. Halfway up the hill, they drop four apples. Okay. And his younger brother, Ian, picks up three. They continue up the hill, and then a plane will then drop 20 more apples. How far... Have they travelled? 
Okay, well, uh, I don't even know where to begin with this. Uh, I feel this is quite technically difficult. I I'm going to have to guess. What do you think, David? What are well, your What are your thoughts on Tim, this? Tim, I've always been the uh, the maths brain of this uh, pairing, and um, I, I just wanted to check before I answered this question: Is this Ms. Julie Canning? Um, yes, it is. Right. That's my That's my seventh grade maths teacher. Thanks. Hi, Hi, Mrs. Canning. Um, uh, she knows very well I failed maths. So, uh, look, this is a trick question. I think uh, the distance is. Uh, I have to go to music practice now and drama class. Bye-bye. That's what I would say. I think that sums it up. And uh, a little personal thing for me, Julie, is um, try and lose the bitterness. Mm -hmm. I think that's really going to eat you up over the years. Um, so, yeah, maybe maybe shake that out. Take a nice long walk. Um, look, at, look at some paintings. Or maybe go and stand by the sea. I uh, hope that helps. Thank you very much, Julie. There's more to life than maths. Thank you for listening to Outcasts. Please remember to rate, subscribe, and leave a review as it all helps. Follow us on our Instagram page at outcast.podcast for all the latest updates. Or you can send us an email at outcastspodcastshow at gmail.com. Every week, we shall select a question from one of our listeners to answer on the show. The theme music is composed by Kieran Ledwidge. All views and opinions expressed on the show are our own and have no affiliation with the series of books written by Diana Gabaldone or the Sony Stars television show Outlander. No animals were harmed in the making of this podcast. Although I did have a ham sandwich earlier. So. See you next time. See you next time. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365-day returns.